Welcome to Light Warrior Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Kant, author of the number one international best-selling book, Sensitivity is Your Superpower, How to Harness Your Gifts, Fulfill Your Purpose, and Create a Life of Joy. And in case you are new to the tribe, I would love to gift you my Sensitive Soul Empowerment Guide, and you can get that at sensitivesoulguide.com. And it covers the three ways of navigating your way to more peace, positivity, and personal power so you can manifest those beautiful dreams of yours that I know you have. Cool or cool, so sensitivesoulguide.com. Now, today I will be speaking with my soul brother, Dr. Ryan Joseph Allen. He's an amazing sensitive soul young man who I've gotten to know over the last several months and just a beautiful soul. I'm super excited that he is here with us today talking about his book called My Drug Dealer Brought Me to God. Like, is that an, an interesting <laughs> title or what? Uh, yeah, so he went through a very interesting uh, past. He's going to share with us his story. And, uh, you know, storytelling has been known to significantly impact the person sharing the story, breaking down barriers, creating a vast connection with recipients. So he is hoping, we are hoping through his beautiful, amazing story that people can find their own connections within their own recovery, spirituality, with the LGBTQ plus communities that Ryan is so passionately uh, wanting to help and share wisdom with. Um, So during this episode, we're going to discuss the true impact of sharing your story. Um, What is this term post-traumatic spiritual growth and what's that all about? and the positive impact of addiction and recovery, and so much more. Um, and Ryan believes that when we show up hyper-authentically, I love that word, that's new to me, um, we can support others by simply being our true selves. He is a transformational coach, speaker, and author. And, of course, the book we're talking about today, The Self-Help Memoir, My Drug Zero Brought Me to God, uh, which is a best-selling book. By the way, he recently uh, completed his doctoral work, bridging the gap between trauma, spirituality, and post-traumatic growth. His goal is to lead leaders. Uh, lead the leaders and show others how to impact their community through kindness, acceptance, and love. And his little motto is love must win. So it's beautiful. And I'd love to welcome Ryan, Dr. Ryan, to the show. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? It's so good to see you all today. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm sure since you recently got your doctoral degree that you're probably not used to people calling you Dr. Ryan Allen, right? Not yet. I'm I'm getting used to it though. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, you know, do you ha- I didn't ask you before, I guess I could have. Do you prefer uh for me to address you as Dr. Ryan? Because I often will, uh, with my guests or Ryan or what do you have a preference or not? No, no preference whatsoever. Just <laughs> whatever you want to call oh. me. <laughs> I'm happy. Okay. <laughs> so brother. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, uh, exactly. So uh, you can check out uh, Ryan's website as well, uh, ryanjosephallen.com. So, um, yeah, so this is really interesting. When I saw the title of your book, My Drug Dealer Brought Me to God, I was like, whoa, <laughs> we have to have you on the show. This sounds like a fascinating story. So if you would, could you please share with us, you know, how did you get to write a book that's titled that what 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 was going on <laughs> yeah so it's it's a longer story so at any point try to jump in and, and ask questions or if you want some clarity sure. let me know and or if I'm going too long just cut me off um but I I've done my best to try to condense it into like a five minute uh kind of story um but it is 
a lot longer than that. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, try, try to convince it down for you. Um, so it all started when I was really young. I was three or four years old. Really definitely felt different than everyone around me. Um, I felt different than especially the men around me. So my brothers who like, yeah. or my brother who liked sports, um, my stepdad who liked video games and sports and, you know, my male friends who just liked different things than I did. And so um, I started to notice like these differences. And then by the time I was six, I had my first thoughts of ending my own life. And um, I was pretty contemplative at that age. So like I was aware that that wasn't like a normal thought or feeling. And, um, you know, because first it was a thought right and then it was kind of a feeling and then um it fleeted really quickly it was just like a moment in time but I would say that was like the I think the point that I really realized um that I was so different than everyone around me like I started to pick up on it when I was a few you know three four so a little bit younger but by the time I was that age I was like I'm different I don't fit in (laughs) I don't I don't belong here um and so, you know, by the next couple of years roll by, by the time I'm eight or nine, I realize, oh, I don't belong because I'm a member of this, didn't know what that even was, but just had that feeling inside like, oh, I'm attracted to, you know, men and that's not, I don't know anyone around me like that. So I don't even know what a term mm-hmm. is for that. And then, you know, middle school rolls around or, you know, even, you know, even before middle school at ages and, and started to realize like, oh, yeah, that's what that is. And then I turned really quickly to self-mutilation, drugs, alcohol, um, any type of self-destructive behaviors because I grew to hate myself. I grew to have a self-loathing because I was so different than people around me and then also didn't want anybody to know who I was. And so I was um, on a constant heightened state mental health-wise around, um, like, hiding who I was and um, Mm. feeling not good enough. And so – that rolls into college, <laughs> uh, my, wow. my young years in college, and, and develop um, a pretty severe opioid, opioid addiction. Um, right around that time, my daughter was born, and so I was in a, um, a heterosexual relationship with her mother for almost five years, and we were engaged, and, you know, she had been born, and right around that time, I was like, I just can't do this anymore. Um, so I broke things off, uh, came out to everybody thinking, oh, this is going to be the moment. Things are going to change. Life is going to open up, right? <laughs> okay. And um, my, my spiral actually went de- more downward for into that opioid addiction, deeper into addictions and unhealthy relationships and self-loathing. That was in a deeper way because I think sometimes when you're, like, looking forward to something, you're like, oh, when I reach here, I'm going to feel – this way and then you get there and you don't feel that way it kind of spins you sometimes in the other direction and so this is where my drug dealer comes in because um, I had just gotten um, clean it's you know one word or you know I don't even usually use that word but I I got off of the opioids I got off of the um, opioids for about two months and, Mm -hmm. and I was doing really well well in theory right like I was doing really well on paper you know no opioids but I was still really struggling um, mental health-wise and still using other drugs and um, alcohol to kind of medicate and cope. And so my drug dealer had noticed that. Uh, My beautiful friend Marie 
um, who was also happened to be my drug dealer, right? And mm-hmm. um, she came into my room one day as I was laying in my bed. Um, this is about, um, I was the age of like 22, just around, just, just turned 22. And um, she jumped on my bed and was like, you have to get up, you have to get up. And so she, she dragged me out of bed and we got high and we're drinking or whatever and um, sitting at my apartment and something came up and she just started talking about God and she started talking about God in a way I'd never heard someone talk about God before. And it was this really beautiful experience and I can share more later about that kind of um, my first awakening, my second awakening and, and bigger shifts later on. But it was this moment in time when I felt connected to my heart in a way that I had never felt connected to my heart before, except when I was really little, like three, four, Mm. five, you know, six, seven, you know, really little, I felt connected to God in this way. And I'd usually feel connected to him through someone that was talking about God um, or talking about like really passionate love or talking about, um, even at church when they would sing, I wouldn't be the word mm. that they say at the pulpit for sure, but it would be the singing and I would like connect with right. it and I would really feel this love. I hadn't felt that since I was really young. And so I went, you know, after my drug dealer left, I went to the bathroom, fell on my knees and asked God to save my life. I didn't know necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can, like I said, we can talk about that part later, but, or now, but um, it eventually led me to um, a few months after that, I, you know, got a message directly from God, which gave me my purpose. Um, and then also, you know, implored me to quit, quit all drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, toxins in my body. Um, took about a year to get sober, completely sober after that point. And I had some other mm-hmm. shifts around even caffeine consumption for myself. So like caffeine free for um, the last seven years or so. But wow. um, this happened all about a decade ago. Um, around 11 years ago. And then, you know, my complete sobriety has been about 10 years now. Um, but it was, it's definitely been a journey. And like I said, I, there's so many pieces along the way, obviously the, the after pieces as well. And my spiritual journey um, that started with, with my drug dealer or right before that, a couple months before I started kind of having my first shift and then still going on those shifts today. <laughs> so right. I will let you kind of jump in and ask questions or clarity or um, ask certain portions of a journey that you're just interested about. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, that that would be great. And, and by the way, if you are joining us live and listening in live, I have opened up the chat. So if you uh, are online and would like to ask Ryan a question or a comment or maybe share one of your stories, you can do so there. Uh, if you'd like to call in and say hello uh, and also chat with Ryan and myself, you can call in at 818-514-1190 and hit one. So we know your hand is up again. If you're live on the call, you can actually join us in this really, really riveting conversation, 818-514-1190 and hit one. So, Ryan, I did want to have you go back a little bit about that part where you said, you know, you got on your knees and you prayed to God. Like, what exactly did you do? What did you say? How were you feeling? And how did you know, like, it was going to do anything, if if anything? <laughs> well, so I'll tell a little bit of um, the conversation I had with my drug dealer, um, Marie, which is such a beautiful soul, and I think I think that's important to just take a second to think about that, right? Because some people, mm-hmm. people hear that word drug dealer, the connotation is horrible, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. you know go into all that. Right. But, but you feel, 
feel a certain way when you hear that word. And I think I purposely wanted to use that word because for one, she was my drug dealer. So accuracy, it was important to me. For two, it was like mm-hmm. this reminder that love and beauty comes in every way, shape and form into our, into our, mm-hmm. or can come that way into our lives if we open up our hearts to allow it. So that's number one. And, and two, we were, we were sitting there talking about this, you know, I told her, I said, I'm having this feeling in my heart that I had since, you know, I haven't had since I was a little kid. And, and she goes, yeah, that's, that's God, that's love. And I said, I said, I believe. And then right when I said that, hmm. I believe there was this little plaque on my, um, actually it was sitting on top of my microwave in my kitchen. And it was part of a three set plaque, um, like, uh, hangings from Christmas time. There was like faith, hope mm-hmm. and love or some, or faith, believe in love or whatever. I don't remember. Um, but we, I put back the other two when I put back my Christmas stuff, cause this was a few months after Christmas. And, um, I left up for some reason that believe sign. I don't know why, right? Because, like, you would just presumably put all your Christmas stuff away. Why would you leave out right. one of the three? So right when I said believe, I said, I believe. I saw that, you know, that that wow. that plaque on my striker wave. And so I was like, well, that something feels something special. Like, I didn't, I didn't even verbalize it, I don't think, to anybody at the time. But I was like, in my heart, I city that I hadn't really ever felt before where I kind of knew that, that something bigger was at work, something was bigger in the background. And so as we finished the conversation and we talked a little bit about Christianity, which we can totally hit on <laughs> at a different part in the, the conversation, because uh, I have <laughs> definitely interesting things to share about that. But as we talked about that and, and how she navigated kind of her belief system and she said, you know, God loves, my, my God loves everyone and accepts everyone just the way they are. Like, they are loved, like, infinitely loved. Mm. And that's, like, when my heart kind of broke open. And um, she left. She left to go home. And I, um, well, she actually left. She was actually staying at my house. But she, she left to go to her mom's home because um, her mom lived in the same apartment complex as I did. So she was kind of bouncing back before, back and forth between houses. She was homeless at the time. And so or shelterless at least um, in some ways, right? And so I went to the bathroom and I just had this overwhelming sense. I had that same love that I had felt in the kitchen when we were talking and it just opened up in me and I literally got weak in my knees. Um, mm. And, you know, I had been drinking and smoking, but I was like, my tolerance was very, very, very high at this point. Um, so I was not like high or you know, drunk or whatever, but I was under the, under the, um, kind of under the influence there, but, but not, not, uh, not in any way, shape or form where I was not in control of my body, essentially is what I'm getting at. And I just, but my knees got weak and I, I, I just fell on my, fell on them and placed my arms up against the wall and my head was sitting on the wall as well. And, I just had this overwhelming sense to talk to God like I had when I was really young. I didn't necessarily know, oh gosh, right, like what what that meant at the time. I just knew that I lo- I had that feeling and I was being called to to connect with it. And so I fell on my knees and just really asked for for God to come into me, come into my life, come into my heart and and, you know, I've been baptized multiple times when I was a kid or whatever, and um, sometimes I felt something, sometimes I really didn't. But I, but anyway, um, 
it reminded me of something like that, but it wasn't there, the dogma. There was no dogma, right? There was no uh, really belief. There was no belief system yet. I was forming my belief, my, my own belief right. system, but that started right there with love. Yeah, and and the next day something really powerful happened because it, it didn't just stop there, right? The next day God was like, I'm going to give you another big sign, and, and so I was like, okay. Um, but I was taking my drug dealer to work. Um, mm-hmm. Contrary to many belief systems, some drug dealers do have full-time jobs too, and she did. She was one of those people that had a full-time right. job. She was trying to get her kids. She was trying to get her kids back and um, mm. custody, which you know, some probably not a great idea to sell drugs. But you know, hey. Um, also, you know, people do a lot of things to get the places that they want to be. But anyway, we could have a whole mm-hmm. ten-hour conversation about that, so we won't. But I was taking her to work, and. Um, we were talking about faith because I said, well, now that I believe, I said, I truly believe. I said, I really Mm do. I said, how do I have faith in that? Like faith to me is like the next step in believing something, um, believing in in something is faith. And so we were talking about it. She was just sharing with me about her faith and how it, you know, it it doesn't ever, um, she was just explaining to me how it was really powerful and strong for her and what it felt like for her. And, um, I was like, yeah, I said, well, now that I believe I want to have faith, and I dropped her off at work and pulled out um, from from the parking lot, and the one car in the state of Kentucky, because I lived in Kentucky at the time, um, that could say faith on it was right in front of me. Not no faith way. one, faith two, faith ten. Oh, so my God. So I looked up, I looked, yeah, I looked That's up how incredible. many cars were in the state at the time. I think it was. 2.6 million cars in the state of Kentucky with license plates at the time, and that was the like one. I'd hit the lottery, right? Um, and so it was that synchronicity that, like, really helped, right? Like, the one I had the night before was with believing and then faith, and it was like, okay, Ooh. this can't be, like, okay, I, I know something bigger is here, right? And so that's when I really started to dive into um, – spirituality, which is such a broad term, right? But I dove into spirituality in, in different ways and um, eventually became trained in, you know, certain um, healing modalities. And um, I took a year of uh, teaching from the School of Metaphysics, which teaches all around world religions and um, meditation, mindfulness techniques, um, concentration techniques, um, other metaphysical trainings and, and gifts and teachings as well, especially when you get further into the lessons. So I only completed, there's four kind of series or um, stages, and I got through the first stage, um, but there's three others. And so really cool school. Um, and, and so we talk about that too, but yeah, I'll let you ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's amazing. I love that story um, about the, you know, the faith and, and the synchronicity, that feedback coming right away. Uh, like that is so incredible. Like there's no, hey, this isn't a coincidence. You know, this is a synchronicity. It's really a message. And I'm just curious as to, you know, when you talk about God told you this or that, like, um, how do you receive those messages personally? Like, do you have a vision? Do you sometimes hear words? Do you see words? Like, how does that come up for you? Um, like maybe back then, and then maybe now, or is that different? Yeah. Well. So at first it was, it it was that feeling like that really strong feeling, and then like a message would come through that didn't mm-hmm. seem like it came like originated within me, right? Because like I was pretty, I have always been since I was very little, 
and still am very um, tuned in with my introspective nature. And so I'm, I'm, so I'm aware of what's kind of internal, what's for me and what's from the outside. So that's even nowadays when I walk into like um, a room and there happens to be four other people in the room and two of them were in an argument before I got there. I could definitely like walk in the room and feel it. So like mm. sometimes it's a feeling, but I know it's not from me. Right. So, um, and then sometimes it would manifest kind of more than a feeling. It'd be these words, right. It would be like, a message, wow. like um, when the time God came to me and told me my um, mission here on earth, it was a mix of, it was multiple things, right. It started as a feeling. It, it came into like these thoughts and words that weren't mine. And then this was one of the only times that I would say God spoke through me because um, I was with a friend talking about um, all of these shifts and changes. I call this my big shift because I was, it was about um, three months after I had that conversation with my drug dealer and I started really diving into what spirituality looked and felt like for me. But I sat there in the car with him and I went through this progression, right? This feeling where I got really heart centered, this, this, these kind of messages or words that kind of popped up into my awareness that I was expressing with him. But then all of a sudden, like something shifted, like, um, and it was, it's like my, my mind got absolutely blank, but I was mid conversation. And then Mm. all of a sudden these words were funneled in that were not of my, you know, some people might call that many things in the spiritual world, right? Like, um, some people open the Akashic records and read the Akashic records and that kind of flows in for them like that. Like it's your channel for that. And so mm-hmm. at the moment I didn't know what the words were for that, but cause I was fairly new into my journey of spirituality, but I was like, Ooh, this is definitely not me. And the moment I didn't, so in the moment it just came out, right. The words just came right. flowing. afterwards. I was like, Whoa, I said, that was not, those were not my words. And my friend was like, what do you mean? And I was like, I, and he's like, well, I, I know what you, I, I could tell that your like your voice and your um, even the way you speak, you, almost your your whole voice changed. Not just like your tones, everything, almost like a different voice. And I said, "Yeah." I said, I, "I'm looking back. I I know that when that shift happened, I said, but it was like I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> I said it was like nothing. Wow. I wasn't forcing anything. And so um, in that moment, that's when God gave me my my purpose and said but he didn't speak to me like Ryan. It was like, I'm supposed to do this, this, and this. And, um, and gave me a couple other things. Um, and then it shifted right back into my kind of more heart centered, introspective, um, looking or, um, at, at the, at the situation. And like I said, my friend definitely noticed it and I did too. And we're like, Whoa, that was interesting. And at the first I was like, Oh my gosh, am I like having a psychotic break? What's going on? (laughs) And, um, but I knew, I knew it wasn't, I, I knew something, something in my heart and soul was like, no, that was just a progression of this conversation. You needed to hear that in your own, in your own, from your own mouth, but not of your own words. Um, mm. And so it's a hard thing to try to describe. And I think, I think each time I describe it, it's a little different because it's so hard to, to articulate what that feels like, but it's like, gosh, it's like you're on autopilot and you're aware of everything going on but then the, something's coming out that's not of of even the autopilot because you it's not from you it's like 
it's like a secondary person shows up and is like pushing buttons on the plane or something, but you're just sitting there and you're aware of it, but it's all you still. Um, yeah, so. that's so interesting. I know people, some, some people that channel are totally aware of what the channel is saying, you know, what, what the voice is saying, like you are, and other people channel and they are really like, like asleep at the wheel, they're just kind of like, okay, well, we'll see what happens, right? And they record it, and then later on, they listen and go, whoa, that was really wise. <laughs> you know, like they're not actually fully aware, uh, and and it sounds like you were fully aware and just bearing witness to this, you know, this 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 message that was coming out that was just flowing out without resistance. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, and that's that's exactly how it felt, and. And nowadays, um, <laughs> I can I can open up that channel and do a much more um, integrative experience where it's it's some in, intuition, it's some guidance, it's some channeling, and it's some of my own you know abilities, gifts, skills, um, and kind of mingled together between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times when I work with clients, or a lot of times when I'm just um, happens most naturally actually when I'm outside in nature. Um, yeah. And then it just comes in really clear and clean. A lot of times, like my best, if I'm going to idea generate, I go into nature because all of a sudden the channel is just immediately open t- typically. Um, and it just flows in and I'm able to like understand it because it's not as um, of a, I don't want to say abrasive in a negative way, but that experience was abrasive. Like it was like, ah, like what is this? I'm like, like, you know, at, at the same time, though, it was calm and beautiful, but it was definitely, like, out of the norm. And now, since I've integrated so many other things into my practices, into my um, knowings and understandings, um, I'm able to kind of really channel in a way that is uh, – it keeps things open, but it also um, allows for my own kind of skills and abilities to kind of come in and they kind of play together with that channeling, right. um, and that's when I get my best ideas for, like, anything going on in the world, and that's actually how I got the idea to write My Drug Dealer Brought Me to God. I was out in nature, and God said, you're going to write a book, and I was, like, talking back and forth with God, and I was like, nah. um, <laughs> and um and then later on that day, so that was, like, a conversation I had with God in, like, a prayer type of situation, then later on that day, um, I was meditating, um, still in the woods, I was hiking that whole day. And uh, and it, the channel kind of came in, like, this is the message of the book, or this is, like, the title of the book. And I said, oh, okay. Ooh, I'm putting everything out there, aren't I? I'm not going to – I'm not allowed to slip on this, this adventure. And that was the message I got, too. Like, you're not able no, to hiding. hold anything back unless you <laughs> – Exactly. And, and don't hold your story back. Everything's open to be shared. Mm. Um, obviously, names were changed in my book, and, and um, certain stories were left out, you know, to kind of – um, to just protect people's identity and things like that. But, but in, in general, like, it is a very, very, like, this is what happened. Um, <laughs> I don't hide anything. Um, wow. The first half of the book is a little, I, I don't like the word heavy, but the first half of the book is, like, real and raw. Yeah. And, you know, right. when someone's in active addiction and someone's working through all these traumas and experiencing these traumas, you know, a survivor of suicide, um, you know, all kinds of things. It is, hev- it is, it can be heavy depending on how you mm-hmm. look at it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why we incorporated um, a workbook in the back of the workbook 
um, where it follows along with each chapter and section of the book, and you can kind of follow through. And, and the hope is that people can um, kind of work through it as they go, knowing that the first half is a little bit more um, um, it's a little more challenging to read and navigate, I'll be honest. But then the second half of the book, it's really, you know, talks about my awakenings and then shares some of those experiences. And then the other half of the workbook is based around practices and um, mm-hmm. understandings and knowings that can then be, like, applied for that piece of the journey for someone. So my goal is that someone picks up the book, reads it from start to finish, uses the workbook to kind of integrate some of their own traumas and things like that and healing um, and then um, go out into the world and know that they're able to share their story as well. Like that's kind of the overarching theme of what I'm really hoping people take away is that everyone has a story to share and it's powerful when you share it and it's powerful for yourself, but also others. And uh, storytelling is interesting because you can really start just by sharing your story with yourself on, on paper or recording Um, maybe you don't ever share it with anybody else and that's okay, but that's still a portion of storytelling in a way that does a lot of healing. Um, and then, you know, there's other ways to share. You can share in small groups and book groups and, um, recovery groups and peer support groups. You can share with family or friends that are trusted. You can share uh, more publicly on things like a podcast or a, uh, um, public, gathering you can share really publicly in like a book or a blog or a vlog or whatever um so there's multiple areas to share it's not it's not like a blanket i'm going to share my story i have to tell everyone my story right away it didn't start like that with me i started slowly you know i started Mm -hmm. very slowly you know i wouldn't even admit i was in recovery for the first three or four years of my, maybe three years probably of my recovery. I didn't, wouldn't even tell people I worked with or whatever. Um, every now and again, a close friend would know. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's timeline looks different for how they share and why they share. Um, so I always like to tell people that. So don't get discouraged if you're like, I want to share my story. Okay, I'm scared. Um, you know, <laughs> let that fear be a catalyst to kind of open up you know, why does that not feel good to you to share? What vulnerabilities does that bring up for you and why? And then kind of work through those as you start sharing with really safe spaces, even if at the very beginning it's just sharing, getting it out of your um, mm. out of your body, right? Because you can, like, share that story. It's like a releasing when you could just even put it on paper or voice recorded or video recorded. It's very helpful and kind of releasing in a releasing process. Mm, yeah, part of that healing. And, you know, I think I used to overshare. I think I got that from my mom. Like, she'd be at the grocery store line and talking to people about her CAT scan or whatever. And I'm like, Mom, they don't need to know. <laughs> right? Like, really? Like, <laughs> some stranger. Um, so I, I think I tended to overshare some, you know, really intimate things. Um, and, I mean, it serves me well now, but, you know, that. <laughs> I think I overshared to some, you know, family and friends and really got a lot of flack. Uh, and it was hard and it was, that could also cause trauma. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, your experience in terms of, you know, coming out to your family, um, you know, sharing the whole, you know, drug thing to people you said to, you know, share it first with people who are safe. Um, so like, how did you figure that out? Yeah. 
it's been um, interesting navigating, and I use the word interesting on purpose because navigating trauma is complex. Um, it doesn't have to be complicated, but it is definitely complex, and I'm a very complex. And so um, my partner, he's I've had a partner for the last few years, and he's so amazing, and he always tells me when I'm, like, feeling like, oh, I'm so complicated, he always corrects me and says, you're not complicated, you're just complex, and your complexities mm-hmm. are beautiful. And even if it's interesting mm-hmm. to navigate, you know, he'll use those words, like, even if it's interesting to navigate your complexities, it's not complicated like not that. negative it's just complex like and so that's yeah it's, and that's and that's how I view kind of looking at trauma and healing trauma though I, I'm hesitant to say the word healing trauma because I don't think trauma is necessarily something that you like I don't think it's something that you can like put a band-aid on and heal um, I don't think it's something that you can kind of uh, just blanket statement oh I've healed my trauma I think it's very layered and it's also very intricate, very complex, and it's very dependent on each person. Um, and there's a lot of people that agree in the trauma industry and the trauma world and the trauma um, sector that there is no true healing of trauma. It's more of like how do you manage the trauma that you faced and then how do you move on from there and kind of um, integrate things that help you to better um, utilize, you know, the people around you and yourself and your own skill sets and knowings and understandings to navigate through in a way that feels better. <laughs> and I think right, like transforming it and learning from it and evolving and, from it rather than just saying, oh, I got me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, um, so my trauma started, like, from a really young age. Um, most of it was self and. I don't like the word inflicted either, but self, it was self-guided in some ways because, um, or self-perpetuated is probably the best way to say mm. that because it came from society. A lot of times it came from extended family members. It did come from immediate family members in certain ways too. Um, it came from friends, but it came from a lot of times myself propelling it forward because I didn't know how to um, look at that. So like, We'll take coming out, for instance. Like, the coming out process started when I was really young, right? Like, I knew I was different, three or four. knew I was really different by six or seven. Knew that I was in the community by the time I was eight or nine. Knew exactly what that meant by the time I was, like, ten. Um, and that whole time I was hearing things from society, right? You know, I grew up in um, a suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio, and, and – the state of Kentucky, actually, because it's right across the river. So I grew up in northern Kentucky um, Mm -hmm. area. And the rhetoric was LGBTQ people go to hell. And that was even like Mm. society. It wasn't even religious. It was like societal. Um, And then beyond that, like from from a peer standpoint, it wasn't – the peers didn't say and do stuff like that, like have that rhetoric. But the peers did have the rhetoric of – it's weird. Everyone made fun of each other. Like all the kids made fun of each other for being gay. Um, even if they weren't, you know, it was just like everyone got made fun of for that. Everyone got called gay. Probably didn't affect the kids mm-hmm. that weren't gay very much, or maybe it did, but definitely affected the kids that were LGBTQ plus a lot. Um, from everyone I've heard, you know, their story, especially in this geographical region, um, it was really impactful to their journey to hear those things. So a lot of it came from that, but then 
there were multiple layers to this, right? So um, some of it came from religion and church. So my family was, um, <laughs> my immediate family, my nuclear family wasn't religious at all. Actually, probably would be more agnostic or even at times atheist appearing to others. Um, but my families on the outside, right, aunts, uncles, grandparents, et cetera, cousins, all tended to be pretty religious, all different denominations, right? I have some non-denominational, some Baptist, some Catholic. A huge portion of them, though, were from Nashville, Tennessee area, and they were Church of Christ. So um, not the United Church of Christ, but Church of Christ. It is very Southern. It thinks Southern Baptist, but um, if you're trying to get, like, a sense of what that feels like, think Southern Baptist, but maybe even more um, conservative or more regimented in what their belief systems were. And so from a really young age, from, I mean, from the time I have cognitive memory, um, I heard my grandparents and aunts, uncles, whoever say, you know, if you're not in church to Christ, you're going to hell. If you're this, you're going to hell. If you're um, a woman and you cut your hair, you're going to hell. If you play instruments in the church that aren't a piano or organ, you're going to hell. If you're gay, you're going to hell. If you're a woman in in political affiliation, you know, if you're a political, uh, like, candidate or you're a politician that's a woman, you're going to hell because women are supposed to serve men and those women aren't serving. I mean, it was across the board heard. That I kind think James, my husband, was it, part of the Church of Christ for a while as well, and it was super strict. It was kind of very, very judgmental. He really didn't like it. Yeah, it was. And think, and think from a young age, hearing that rhetoric, and then also hearing that stuff from society. And then also I, because I, because I told you, I was really connected to God from a really young age. I didn't know what that meant, the words, but I had the feeling. And so I especially when they'd sing, that was really – I don't want to say the mm. only time, but it was probably the 90% of the time I felt that feeling in my heart was when people were mm. singing collectively. Um, and I think what it was, what I was feeling now that I'm able to like put words to it and feelings to it, it wasn't necessarily, um, gosh, this is a, it's a complex conversation, but, but it, it wasn't necessarily the, the, <laughs> the Christian rhetoric or even biblical messaging what I was really sensing was this love from people right. um, and, and it was a powerful, like people were worshiping and though, and though the word worship doesn't always feel good to me. Um, Cause I don't, to, to me, God is me and I'm God and God is love and I am love and, and everyone around me, everything is connected and everything mm-hmm. is in a circle. Mm-hmm. And so all of that me. And anyway, so I, Worship is a little bit of an interesting, you know, we could talk about that all day too, but, but I'll get back to my point, which was, I felt this like love that was so intense and so beautiful. And then I also felt like that in the place. A lot of times I would go to churches and if no one was in there, I would feel like really calm and really like, mm-hmm. um, really like, it was like this, this place where you will gather to celebrate love. And so no matter what congregation or church or whatever, I felt that almost every church I went to. Um, and it was the times when I would hear the messaging um, right from the pulpit that oftentimes I would be, un- I would be confused, right? Because I'd be like, this messaging doesn't match the energy I'm feeling. I'm feeling love. I'm feeling like there's love from these people in their hearts and in their words. Like when they sing and when they worship, I'm using air quotes for worship, but when they worship and I feel this love and then, then I go and I feel something way different when they open their mouth, usually, you know, the pastors, mm. reverends, preachers, whatever. Um, 
especially if it was around hell, condemnation, fire, brimstone. I use my country accent. Um, But that's because (laughs) it it was, like, really strong then, and and it was, like, the opposite feeling. I was like, ooh, I don't like that feeling. And, um, and I don't feel connected to it. And I don't feel like that's part of my, um, you know, like a part of me, like it just didn't feel right. And so that was from a really young age. And so now I have the trauma from society, from family, you know, from family, from friends, from the churches that I've went to. And now I also have this other trauma, which is mixed messaging, right? Because I have this beautiful feeling when I go to a church, but I also have this like, oh, like yucky feeling at the same time. And so that's a trauma in itself. And um, I looked at that in my doctoral work. My my doctoral study was a two-phase study. There was a qualitative study, um, which looked at 24 interviews with um, individuals who, 14 of which were LGBTQ plus individuals and 10 were ally individuals. And we looked at their religious and spiritual trauma. And then we looked at their self-identified post-traumatic spiritual growth, um, which is essentially saying um, we looked at their trauma and then we looked at how they thought that grew from their trauma um, mm-hmm. or believed they grew from their trauma, which I will say from my, my perspective, all these people that were interviewed, I would, I would mark them as that as well. Um, like if I was marking um, as identifiers of what, what trauma looked like and growth, which I did, um, I would say all these people definitely had growth. So it's funny that, you know, I had to use the word self-identified growth because we're not allowed to like, I mean, there are metrics to use to say if someone grew and that's what I did in my quantitative study, but um, it, we didn't give the, because we didn't want to, to, to murk up the, da- the data, um, we mm-hmm. weren't able to give them the, the kind of indices to see if they had post-traumatic spiritual growth. It had to be self-identified. Um, for research. But anyway, on the other end, I did a, a quantitative study in phase two, which was um, over 400 participants who wow. um, were either LGBTQ plus or allies, and they answered a survey where they looked at post-traumatic spiritual growth. So they, they marked their trauma. Um, they marked their religious and spiritual trauma. They gave a little bit of demographics on just like what who they identified in the community as an ally or LGBTQ member. Um, you know, where they identified their um, sexual orientation and gender identity. So were they male, female, transgender, non-binary, et cetera. And so I I captured that data. And then we also captured um, this index called the post-traumatic growth index. And what it looked at is multiple areas in which people can grow after trauma. And one of those areas, um, there's multiple areas, but one of those areas is spiritual. And so we used the index that had an expanded spiritual index so we could look at um, essentially these people that had trauma and then their growth, what that looked like, did on a, on a scientific level. So um, really cool, interesting results. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm just getting to a point where I'm able to share um, my dissertation. It's, it's, I, in, in the next week or two, I'll be able to, like, literally send it out in, like, a PDF form or um, share it and other public I'm not able to share yet. It's still being approved by the university, but um, it's just like a form formality type process. So um, anyway, so during this time, what I looked at, and this is, I'm going to circle, I'm going to full circle here, and that is I looked at um, some of these traumas that people face, 
And mixed messaging was one of the biggest traumas, um, especially wow. with the 24 um, people we looked at and we interviewed. A lot of them said the same similar things. I mean, different stories, right, but same thing, right? I heard one thing in the church, and I saw something different. Um, I felt something in the church, or I felt something from when people would talk about this, but then I saw something different or, or heard something different or felt something different when they talked about this. And um, the mixed messaging is, is, is also a trauma because as a, as a young child, as a young adult, as a human in general, um, no matter your age, when you hear conflicting elements, conflicting stories, conflicting, have conflicting feelings, it is, it is actually so large sometimes that it's not just like an analysis of like this is the same, this is different, um, or um, it, it's deeper because it, it, because it because faith and religion and especially Christianity have been rooted in this salvation piece right? I do this, I get to go to heaven. I do this, I go to hell. Mm-hmm. Then you're really confused because your salvation <laughs> is tied in with this messaging. So now mm-hmm. your trauma isn't just coming from like the church. It isn't just coming from the messaging of the church. It isn't coming from just my family who said you're going to hell for this, that, and the other. It's also coming from this place of not understanding what the heck is going on? I was about to say the F word, but what the heck is going on? Um, <laughs> because because there's so much that's like conflicting um, in so many ways. And you can see this even now walking into, if you walk into 10 different Christian churches with that were different denominations, you would hear probably 10 different messaging. Now, some of that messaging will be more similar and some would be way different. Um, but that can be, and that was kind of like my experience. Like I had been exposed to all these churches, all these belief systems, all within Christianity. And I still was like, this is because none of this is the same as the other people are saying. And now I have some family saying all these people go to hell. <laughs> and that was really oh, traumatizing. No. And then I have, yeah. So then I walk into church and have this feeling of love. And then I also have this feeling of like damnation and condemnation and hell and brimstone and fire. And it was like, so traumatizing from just that level alone, right? And so people don't think about trauma. Like when you ask someone, do you have religious or spiritual trauma? They say, oh, I guess I wasn't abused by anyone in the church directly. Uh, I wasn't this or that. Maybe I don't have any trauma from from religion. And I'm always like, have you thought about mixed messaging? And then they're like, oh, shit. (laughs) I really (laughs) think maybe we all have this. And I'm like, you know. um, And so I think that's a really interesting piece of the religious or spiritual trauma that we don't look at. And it, and it also goes for people not in Christianity. I mean, we interviewed someone um, who was traditionally Hindu in faith, and, and a similar thing came up there. Similar thing came up with in Judaism. Similar thing came up in um, other religions and belief systems, including um, even spirituality, like a broad spiritual spectrum of belief systems, because there's so many things that so many people believe in and so much messaging out there. So, um I brought that up because I think it's important that when we look at trauma that we realize sometimes the trauma is really blatant in front of our face. Okay, people were saying this and that and the other. That was awful. People told you you were going to hell. That's awful. But the trauma goes way deeper than that for most people on most levels, and this doesn't just go for spirituality or faith or religion. This, this, these trauma, that's forever, a lot of them in life. <laughs> um, so well, trauma can be very, very complex. Yeah, I mean, it's perfect that you're talking about this because 
we can take a look at the last couple of years, you know, with the pandemic and things like that and all the conflicting, you know, opinions, sometimes by the same people, <laughs> you know, like they say one mm-hmm. thing one day and then they flip and they say the opposite later. And then you're like, but, but I'm supposed to trust you. So how am I supposed to trust you? When you said this worked, but then you say, well, actually it doesn't work. And then, you know, and, and then the data all conflicts. And so um, I never really thought about that, um, you know, conflicting uh, messaging as uh, a type of trauma, but that you've really opened my eyes on that um, because that is exactly what is going on in many, many realms, not just religion. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that wow. could the conflicting messages, the messaging is oftentimes traumatizing. And then on top of in a situation where um, stress levels, um, gosh, I mean, we could, I'm sure we could index that on like a research scale, but like that stress collectively, I think everyone can agree the last few years has been heightened um, Mm -hmm. uh, in general. Um, And so when you have increased stress, whatever that's from, right, it's, which we know a lot of it's from. But, um, and then you hear this message and you're like, and it's fear. Now you have stress and fear on top of each other. And then you have right. this messaging about, about those things that are causing fear or stress or could cause or could implement, uh, uh, yeah, could mesh together or whatever. Now it's like really convoluted because you have all of these feelings and all of this building trauma in the moment, like, like real life, um, like we are living in a, in a trauma phase right now. It doesn't mean that everyone lives in a place of like panic or whatever, but collectively, societally, we are in a very, we're in a very traumatic time. And Mm -hmm. some people constantly live in that. And some people are able to kind of navigate through that, um, that outwardly might look more graceful, but, but, but I don't, I think labeling it like, (laughs) you're doing well navigating your trauma and you're doing shitty navigating your trauma. Isn't really doing, <laughs> it's not really doing trauma. The, the trauma, like I said, I keep going back to it's so complex because it's not just surface level. You know, right. I have trauma and that's why healing trauma, getting to that piece of it is, is just as complex if not more or can be. Now I do think that, you know, speaking um, not from an academic, but speaking more from a spiritualist standpoint, there are so many ways and modalities and healing methods and um, things that are really helpful in the process of healing trauma. But I will mm-hmm. say that even in the people that I know, and this is just speaking personally here, but gosh, um, a lot of times when people just use those modalities and don't really do the deep healing work on themselves mm-hmm. um, and kind of bypass the healing process, it sometimes creeps back, creeps, creeps back up um, because it's not completely healed. And so I always, and this is, you know, in my coaching and things like that, um, if people are open to it, I always suggest that they do multiple streams of kind of understanding their trauma. And depending on the level of trauma, it's like, you know, seek professional counseling, guidance, um, therapy, whatever feels good to you. Um, do some trauma work in groups, whatever that may look like. It could be informal, like in a book group um, or formally in like some kind of peer support group or nonprofit or whatever. And then really looking at um, some healing teachers around them. And and that looks different for everybody as well, because healing teacher can, for some people, look like a Reiki master. Um, 
someone who's doing alternative healing methods or modalities. And sometimes it can look like learning from um, spiritual leaders or teachers around you as well. So, but I do like implore people to look at all of those avenues because I think if you just go and, and receive healing from people, from other people, right? Like a Reiki master, for instance, if you had Reiki sessions all the time, it's going to move energy and it's going to cause things to move for you, I believe. But if you're not actually looking at the other pieces of it, I think sometimes it's a bypass to the experience. And so mm. I think the next time, you know, something comes up in life, it might re-trigger that trauma, or maybe you experience a trauma that's even worse than your original trauma, or, um, you know, if we get talking, you know, how about past life and future lives, maybe in a future life, you have that trauma to an even nth degree because you only kind of surface level healed it in this lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. But also trauma is so different. So like I never someone to work on their trauma. It's, it's like you have to know you have to work on your trauma. <laughs> no one can tell you you need to work on your trauma because until you're ready to work on it, it's just like someone in recovery um, from drugs and alcohol. Like if you force them to go to rehab, I mean, you know, you're going to plant seeds. Like Maybe you're going to get a, a sobriety. Yeah, like a court ordered to like forced or family or friends or whoever, a spouse. Oftentimes a spouse will kind of force their partner into, into rehab. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, like force in the sense of like an ultimatum, like I'll leave you unless you don't go. And so right. when they're forced into these situations, you know, either by law or by, you know, um, people around them, it tends to be that a lot of them are not successful in their recovery, successful being so being sober and staying sober. So I would say successful is different in sobriety. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's a whole conversation for, for an expanded time. But um, I do think that it's important that we, that we look at um, this trauma in a way that's kind of like recovery. And that is that you have to be willing to do it. Um, you have to be ready and willing. Right. That's one of the, if you go to AA or NA, that's one of like the main kind of concepts. You have to be, you have to acknowledge it and you have to be willing and ready to kind of work on that. And so um, that's trauma is so complex. So we, we can talk about that. We can talk about something else, but um, I, I do think that that's a really good um, segue into something else. Or like I said, or if you have questions on trauma, I'm, I, I could talk about anything you're, you're wanting to talk about. I could okay. talk about a million different things. <laughs> Right, and it sounds like you know the way you've um, evolved uh, yourself is uh, self-love has been a big, huge part of that. Because I'm guessing that without self-love, if there are still family members that you have that are maybe not fully accepting your authentic you, um, or friends that may not be accepting the authentic you, who you really are, if we take things personally, it can re-trigger or make more trauma. And then what you're saying is, you, you know, you came out slowly, you know, to the people that were going to be supportive and loving and, and things like that. And, and it feels like self-love would be a big part of that so that it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks of you. You still love yourself fully. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. And so true. Um, <laughs> self-love has been – so that's – so when – so when God gave me my mission here on earth, it was to help people love and accept themselves. I mean, it was very clear. He said, that your mission here is to aid in people loving and accepting themselves. And I thought, oh, wow. Well, I can just, like, learn 
what that is and then give them that, right? Well, that was wrong. So that's one. So back up. That's not going to happen. Um, because <laughs> for the first step of that was learning how to really love and accept myself. It was something I'd already been working on, you know, for a few months before that, that time um, when I had that, that moment around from 10 or 11 years ago. And gosh, I'm going to say that I think self-love is a journey that you don't complete. I don't think it's, um, mm. it's, there's never a completion to that. And I would say okay. that people in the world that have gotten to that completed state are like, um, is very, 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 very rare because I think there's always, because we're changing and living in this world, um, there's this, even if we're navigating at like a 5D frequency or higher, which would be like, Gosh, that's the whole thing. So I won't get into that. But but if you're if you're if you're living in an elevated vibration, let's just say that, operating in this 3D world, 3D being kind of like your everyday waking life, like the systems that have all been set up and the structures, it's it's going to be hard to get to a place of self love and stay there because because living in the 3D world that we live in, unless you can live like off grid in a kind of like a society where there's not like everyday people around you <laughs> there's going to be new triggers to your traumas there's going to be new traumas that emerge even if they're not your own traumas right they're societal traumas mm. think of covid in the last couple of years like it would be really mm-hmm. hard to escape the trauma of covid regardless mm-hmm. of where you live at on your own individual vibration and so mm-hmm. to me self-love is an endless journey but I will say that I do think there's a few people that have mastered that and really got there, but those people are, it's very rare. So, so for all intents and purposes, let's just say that it's a, it's an, it's a journey forever. And so I didn't realize that when I was given this, this mission, right? I was given this mission. So it sounds so fun. It sounds so fun. And, um, you know, we started a nonprofit a few years after that called Love Must People Love and Accept Themselves. But um, so there is a lot of fun mixed in there. But, like, the real piece of that was you can't teach until you know, until you are. And so it was like, oh, shit, I really have to learn how to love and accept myself at all levels. I have to love myself if I gain five pounds or 20 pounds. I have to love myself if I fail at something. I have to love myself if I... Uh, mess up a relationship. I got to love myself if I um, royally screw something up. I got to love myself if I do this or that or the other. And I have to accept myself, right? I have to accept that. And I have to know that that's a part of my journey and who I am. And, and um, it might not always have to be a part of who I am, but it was a part of who I am for this part of my journey, right? Like that's a whole acceptance in itself. So I had to learn all these things and I'm continuing to learn. Um, and so those have been ongoing for for over a decade um but self-love to some people so when i first heard the word self-love before i had any type of spiritual awakening i thought oh my gosh how selfish how self-involved are those people (laughs) to love themselves gross um because i was coming from such a place of fear and i think you know um there were people around me that had had a spiritual awakening before. And it was like, even though I admired their spiritual awakenings and I really felt like it was real, I, 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 they were talking about healings and all kinds of things. I didn't know anything about it, but I knew deep down, I said, Ooh, I really liked that. Hated when they talked about self-love. I was like, Ooh, like mm. it literally was like a, I had like Fair a enough. visceral reaction to it. And 
it's because oftentimes we hate the things we know we need the most, <laughs> um, subconsciously <laughs> right. even. And so um, that journey was started when my spiritual journey happened. And, and I think it actually started maybe a little bit before that with the coming out process because I came fully out um, a few months before, well, about six months, eight months before I had any type of spiritual coming out or coming into, right? Um, so I think that like unconsciously, subconsciously, universally, um, you know, we can say God driven or whatever, but, but something in the universe, God, whoever, whatever, love was guiding me even when I wasn't to a place of loving myself yet because I think I had to start my sobriety journey for me personally to really feel like what self-love was because I had to learn how to really take care of myself. I had to learn how to honor myself and my body, how to, um, how to know that I'm enough, even if like everything was in a spiral. I mean, when I first got sober, I, my, uh, that first little bit of sobriety, I off opioids. Um, and then right when I stopped, you know, everything kind of cold Turkey at once, um, I was, I just almost got evicted, which I got kicked out. So I got kicked out from my apartment I lived in. My car almost got repoed. Um, my wow. mom let me live in her basement. that wasn't even finished. Um, I had a part-time job working in a store in the mall, which was a really cool store. I think it was part of my spiritual journey was to work at this fair trade spiritual-based store, which was really cool. Like, <laughs> but, um, but at the time, it was like, you know, and I did. I almost got kicked out of college. I was in college for the last year of, of that I was in the school. Um, I almost got kicked out because, and at the time, I thought I was going to get kicked out because I hadn't attended classes for a whole year, so I was um, enrolled. But I was on drugs. I mean, I was on opioid. I was snorting lines in the bathroom. So if I did go to school, I was, <laughs> was doing drugs. And anyway, so I, I didn't, you know, I either got incomplete or S for all my classes for, for, two, for a whole year, for two semesters. So all of these things happen, and, and what I was given, the message I was given is that if you can't love yourself now, then this is where it starts. And so, like, I literally had to love myself in these moments, living in my mom's basement, you know, which didn't last long. It lasted six months or so, but I had to, like, learn to love myself in that moment. Sobriety, the first few months of my spiritual journey were so powerful because I really had to learn how to, like, rebuild my life and still love myself at the exact same time. doesn't mean that I was like, oh, my God, Ryan, you're the best in the world. Woo! But it didn't mean that I was beating myself up. I was so proud of myself for getting off of drugs. I was so proud of myself for building relationships and friendships with people that were healthier for me. I was so proud of myself for, you know, utilizing the resources around me and um, so proud of myself for, actually getting back into school. Um, they didn't kick me out of school. I was so proud of myself for just like, it was like these little wins, like one little win after one little win. And that really helped me. Um, and I know everyone's journey is not like that. And that's why I'm like, so I feel so thankful that, that the universe and God brought those experiences to me like that. Because I think it was so important that I was able to spend those, those like first three months or so really like seeing if I put hard work towards something and intention and thought and manifestation power that it would manifest. And it was just little stuff, right? I mean, it was big stuff, but it was like little stuff to most people, right? Like a job as a server, you know, I, I left, I, well, for a while I had two part-time jobs, but, um, but then I left and became a full-time server at a Red Lobster of all places. But, um, 
I had served <laughs> in the past, and this was like their main job I'd ever had. And um, like they didn't even actually hire servers off the street. You had to like come in and start like be a server assistant before they even let you be a server. And so yeah. um, this particular red lobster one time. And so, but I but I like celebrated those little victories. Yeah. And then as I celebrated them and kept moving forward and kept staying sober, that's when I kept receiving more and more and more. Mm. And um, those synchronicities too kept pouring in. And so I'd be listening to a song. And I would just weep or um, I would get a goosebumps a lot of times, which I call God bumps. <laughs> <'cause> I, <laughs> that's how I, then whenever I would talk to somebody who I felt like it was a divine led conversation, I would get these bumps all over my body. goosebumps, mm. And I would get, I would hear a song and I would know that God was with me right then in that room in that moment. Um, I knew mm. exactly that I was exactly where I was supposed to be. And I didn't force myself to be somewhere else. And so those first three to six months were, like, so powerful. And then it was, like, all of a sudden kind of, like, um, a shift in some ways, not in a negative way, but in a, out of that kind of, like, rose-colored glasses state, which I really wasn't living, you know, some people would say, oh, you're living in that state, but I don't think it was. It was all progression for a purpose. But I started going deeper into what that self-love and self-acceptance looked like after that. But that first three to six months was, like, really powerful. And I don't know if everyone gets that to have experiences like that. Um, I've been someone, when I was writing my book, um, I had a, a reverend who I really um, admire, a gay reverend, super amazing, really big church in the area. And um, he read my book, and he said, great. He said, but what about all those other people that don't have those experiences like you? Um that really, 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 really have to sit in their struggle for years and years. And I'm like, and I thought that was a really valid comment. And at first I was ashamed when he sent that to me. I was like, oh, I did have it really easy. But when I looked at it, I was like, and I started analyzing, I'm like, it wasn't easy. It was just my journey and everyone's journey is so different. And that journey was the, the hard part, the hardest part about that journey for me was the, you know, 10 years I spent before this self-mutilating, you know, having suicide attempts, using drugs, alcohol to medicate, having severe depression and anxiety, you know, that to me, and everyone's journey is different. Some people will have that for their whole life. And I hope, I hope they don't, but like, I like felt some shame and guilt around that comment that he had. Though after I analyzed it further, like I really realized that it wasn't, a stab at me it wasn't saying like you should have had more pain and trauma <laughs> it, was, <laughs> right? it was the awareness that not everyone is going to have that the ease and grace I had especially that first part of my journey um that first three to six months that that was that was so powerful to me um that it really pushed along the whole rest of my journey. I mean, I'm talking like synchronicities that you could never imagine. Like um, one time I was invited to do this healing modality that I'd never heard of from a friend on Facebook. And then I didn't go because I had to work. And the next week I had, couldn't go because I had to work. The next week I couldn't go. And my mom told me about this healing modality she just went to. And she said that she went on the same day, the same time, the same place that I was supposed to go to that I had to work. So she was, and she was guided by a friend, something, someone completely different from me. There was only 25 people in that room out of the whole Cincinnati region of 
you know, whatever, a million plus people. How, how did that happen? That was the universe. That was God. Like, there's no way that could have happened. That, that there's no way that we couldn't have, we weren't supposed, you know, and I always say I was supposed to be in that room, but I was, it took me a little longer to, to know I was supposed to be there, right? And I eventually showed up three weeks later. My mom was there. We realized that this was the same, the same like modality that neither one of us had known about three weeks prior. She had showed up to, I was invited to and supposed to show up to and finally showed up to. And then we were both trained in this, in this cool thing called oneness, which was like a hands-on healing uh, modality out of India. But it was so cool. Like, right. Like two, like things like that happen, especially the first three to six months. Like it was like clockwork. Like it happened like that for me every day, all the time. Um, Wow. It was so powerful, and and so sometimes I look back because this was ten years ago, and I'm like, I wish I lived in that state now. Like I instantly manifested anything and everything I needed. Like even if it wasn't like, because the things that I were manifesting were really like normal people would say, why were you trying to manifest a place to live, or why were you trying to manifest um, a rental car when you got in a car wreck or whatever? And it was, but to me, I saw those as such big manifestations because for the for the last 22 years of my life before that, especially the last 10, right, when I was really, you know, from the time I was a teenager on, I was manifesting the opposite. I was manifesting negativity. I was manifesting mm-hmm. bad things. And so the, the manifestation of little things was, like, like really big. <laughs> and so, oh, and so um, Ryan, I, I yeah. was wondering if you thought that maybe, like, it's a theory, but um, – uh, and uh, we'll, we're going to close out pretty soon. And I have a little message from Nancy for us to share. Uh, but what I was wondering whether you think that, like, maybe that part where the reverend said, you know, well, not everybody's going to have those things. And you experienced them for the first number of months. And then, and then later on, it wasn't as clockwork. Maybe the, not as, maybe the first part was, like, the universe co-conspiracy conspiring, sorry, wrong word, uh, to, to really make sure you're committed on your mission, <laughs> right? Be committed, you know, and then then the next part where it maybe isn't as clockwork and people could potentially judge it as, uh-oh, it's not as good anymore, you know, that kind of thing, is more like, okay, now it's like what everybody else <laughs> has to deal with. And then you get to experience that as well so that you can kind of coach from understanding and empathizing with the masses. That, Dr. You know, Dr. That, Karen, I don't know if this is just on my end, but you are cutting in and out. I don't know how we're supposed to know if you are or not on all Oh, okay. Sides. Well, um, it could be me, but, it could be me uh, uh, dancing around here uh, with my headset. I shouldn't do that. Can, <laughs> how, how is my audio right now that I'm not moving my head? Um, it's cutting in and out. I can hear like every few words and then it cuts out for a few words. I think I got what you were asking though. If you want me to try to answer that or reflect uh, on it. Um, yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. I can't tell whether, um, whether it's my end yeah, or your I, end. You're, you're coming in clear. So. I want to say that you, and, and please jump in or somehow, <laughs> I don't know if I can hear you, but or I hope you can hear me because I have pretty full coverage here, so I, I think you can hear me still. But um, so I think you – and let me kind of paraphrase. I think you were asking how it – how I navigated when I – that comment um, from a place of, like, I felt like it was really 
powerful moment. And then someone else kind of came in and was like, well, and that kind of, it, yeah, if I'm understanding that right, I don't know. Maybe um, well, I only yeah, got pieces. I, yeah, it's not that, but uh, I, I just had a theory that uh, the reason those synchronicities did not continue occurring at that fast pace is because you needed to understand how the rest of us, you know, feel. <laughs> like, got you know, it, got it, yeah, yes. Yeah, that's, that's just a theory. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yep, that makes sense. Because, I, like I said, I can hear you now, but I couldn't hear you before. But that makes so much sense to what I was hearing in the background um, from time to time when I could hear you. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've never mm-hmm. thought about that until this moment right now. Um, but I think it's it was it was powerful. It was like something that it's not like um, this is worse and that was better. Um, I've really learned that that's not. That's not how I looked at it. It was just really like a miraculous experience to have. Right. And so the gratitude for that experience is something that I think is also a piece of a piece of the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, but I, I yeah. Mm, that, that's beautiful. exactly it. I'm wondering. <laughs> yeah, I was sharing that I didn't think it was a judgmental thing, like as in like, now it's worse and before it was better, like not nothing like that, but just a different experience. And so, you know, I've always wondered, you know, and was jealous before with some of my psychic friends that were very clairvoyant, very clairaudient. And I felt bad that how could I be so quote unquote spiritual and smart and not have these gifts like they do. (laughs) But I realize now that one of the reasons that um, I am not supposed to have those so-called natural abilities on maximum is because I am here to teach other people who also don't have those abilities on maximum to be able to connect with source, have our own conversations and be effective and not uh, have to egoically desire to be the best psychic on the planet, if that makes sense. Mm. Wow. This is really powerful medicine for me too, Dr. Karen. Um, so my mom, so my mom was a clinician for, oh, 20 plus years. Um, so she's a licensed therapist, um, but she is also, on top of that, one of the most powerful healers I've ever met. Um, and by healer, gosh, really, like, I mean, physical bone type of healing, like she could literally heal. She has um, multiple times for me and my brother healed broken bones and things. So, um, but but I'm I'm sharing this because, <laughs> For one, I'm trying to out her a little bit because she's she's breaking into this world the last couple of years of like how and she has amazing sessions and things. So it's kind of a um, she moves a lot of energy and and just anyway really powerful. But but my correlation with what you said is sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm like I know I have those similar gifts, but like I don't I but I do, but I don't have them to the same magnitude at the moment um, that she does, or I feel like I don't. And so it's that like comparison, right? That comparison Mm -hmm. can rob us of, of a lot of joy, even when you're like happy for the other people, right? You can still have that comparison and not be like, um, negative or, or feel any, any sort of way towards the other person, except love and like, like, gosh, that person's so amazing. Right. But then you compare yourself or you Mm -hmm. can compare yourself to these powerful, amazing people. And you just, 
and it was such a good reminder to me, such a good a realization, such good medicine that um, all of our gifts that we have as light workers on this planet are so valuable and so precious. And mm. um, where we, we, I'm just using us as an example, me and you, me and Dr. Karen, we might navigate something way more gracefully than one of these psychic, uh, you know, people with these really great abilities, <laughs> um, healing abilities, then, then we, then they, you know, we might navigate something like that they chal- that they're challenged with. They might look at us and say, and I think that's, that's something I've learned along my journey as well. It's like the times I'm looking at somebody and it could be anything. I mean, it could be physical appearance or whatever, but like by the time, when times I'm looking at someone saying, I wish I had that, they might be looking at me and saying the same thing at a different, mm-hmm. for a different characteristic or trait. And so, um, so I think it's just a good reminder. Like we have such valuable gifts to offer. Um, all of us, all humans, all humans on this planet have very valuable gifts. They all look vastly different or some look vastly different. Um, and it's just empowering to remember that, like mm-hmm. that we, we all have our, our space in the light worker realm. There's all, all kinds of things we can all do every single day to uplift and raise humanity's vibration. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those things is not beating ourselves up, right? For whatever. Right, and being our true self. Comparison. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Oh gosh. Okay. So we're uh, we're we got about ten minutes left. I wanted to share um, from our dear soul sister Nancy. She said, "This is such a beautiful sharing. So appreciated and uplifting. I loved hearing Ryan talk about what he felt in churches. As I was a child, I would feel depressed. I never knew why that it would make me sad." So, um, and then uh, Rain is also here to lend her support as well. She said she could hear both of us just fine. So, yay. <laughs> uh, and uh, oh, Dr. Good. Ryan, yeah, Dr. Ryan, maybe you could share with us, again, your website. And, uh, you know, if people were interested in getting coaching from you or connecting with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so you can just go to mydrugdealerbroughtmetogod.com or ryanjosephallen.com a-l-l-e-n for allen um yeah and it's, it's everything's on my website um i also have a six-month living workshop um for gay identifying men that's out right now um mm-hmm. we're planning on starting that in the next few weeks or the next month so if you know of anyone who's interested um jump on there and check it out it's it's a six-month workshop working through the elements um fire, air, earth, and water, um, and really is a sacred portal space for gay identifying men um, to come do some reflective work, maybe some healing work if they're too. Um, and yeah, so anyway, there's, that's on there. Um, there's all kinds of stuff on there. There's little meditations, there's um, mm. coaching, there's speaking information, there's, um, there's a free download for my uh, workbook for my actual book and then if there's anybody listening that can't you know can't or doesn't want to purchase the book um, as far as financially um, just send me an email or send me a message on my website I'll send you a free um, ebook version um, or mm-hmm. audiobook version too um, while supplies last on the audio version piece um, on the audiobooks but it's on it's on audible so iTunes um, and mm-hmm. Amazon um, which mm-hmm. is gosh what what 
what audible oh it's on audible yeah i'm like what's that called it's on audible <laughs> audible yeah anyway, yeah well that's awesome yeah that's great oh thank yeah. you so much ryan um uh, Raina says i had the same experience in my family in islam so all the words translate mm. so perfectly to probably all religions she just put in that comment in the chat so Dr. Ryan, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show. I love your story. love the journey. And I'm so grateful that I have met you in this lifetime uh, to be your soul sister. So bless you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, soul sister. I love you. And I love all that you do in the world to, to brighten it up and raise our vibration collectively. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, my pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening in. Lots of love. Bye for now.